Welcome to the Brooklyn Sports and Entertainment Law Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Wiener. Today, we're joined by attorney Peter Schoolidge, partner at SPRF and an alumni of the Brooklyn Law School class of 2008. Thanks for joining us today, Peter. Thank you for having me, Jared. So you've done a lot of interesting work in entertainment law, IP, and cryptocurrency, and we're really excited to have you. With all that stuff said, you've had a really interesting career path. Can you start by giving our listeners a brief overview of the type of work your law firm does and the journey in your legal profession post-law school? Sure. So currently, the type of work that my firm handles is a lot of blockchain and distributed ledger technology advisory work, deal work, and litigation. And we got into this field of work back in 2016 when a former partner of mine at a prior firm had a cryptocurrency client, the Nano Project, which we started representing in organizational and transactional work. And they ended up getting sued um, for allegedly issuing an unregistered security in 2018. And we began defending them in that lawsuit and uh, you know, a subsequent lawsuit that was filed in the Northern District of California. And before all that, when I graduated law school, the first job I had was working at Cahill, Gordon, and Rindell downtown in Manhattan, where I was doing uh, securities litigation, commercial litigation, investigations, um, some media and First Amendment law. I was there for about three years, and then I had an opportunity to become a law clerk for Judge Rosalind Mouskoff in the Eastern District of New York. So I took that, left Cahill, uh, did the clerkship for a year. And then after that, I ended up helping a friend of mine found a new law firm. At the time I was clerking, he was uh, the co-chair of Kay Schuller's intellectual property practice, and he wanted to set up a patent infringement litigation firm, um, a small firm. And so I was his first associate, and helped him uh, kind of get the firm up and running. Um, I did that for about three years and then decided to open my own law firm, taking what I'd learned about helping Alan Fish start his firm, and uh, did that at the end of 2015. And, um, you know, started out with one partner who was also a Brooklyn Law School graduate, Josh Kleiman, and then the firm kind of just evolved from there. And now we have five partners and two of counsel and uh, a lot of Brooklyn Law School graduates in the firm. What are some of the challenges of owning and running your own law firm? I would say that administration is a pretty big challenge. The amount of time that you have to spend, even if you have people helping you with it, the amount of time you have to spend, uh, you know, keeping track of accounts, um, making sure all the bills are paid and just doing things that every business kind of needs to do to operate properly um, is a challenge, and uh, that's the biggest one. So your name has been in the news a lot recently um, relating to Wu-Tang Clan's Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. I guess at this point, the infamous one-of-one Wu-Tang Clan album that's been bought and sold and has a bunch of regulations uh, or legal issues surrounding the purchase agreement of the album. Um, could you tell the listeners how you got involved in that album, and then explain briefly some of the main legal provisions surrounding the album? Sure. So the way that I first became involved was that uh, in early 2016, after I had opened my firm, uh, a former colleague reached out, and she knew an artist whose um, portraits of the Wu-Tang Clan members had been used in the book that came with the album, 
uh, pictures of which were taken by a reporter and posted online. Uh, my client found out about it and reached out to you know, the former colleague who in turn connected me with them. So I ended up filing a lawsuit for copyright infringement against uh, Silver Rings, the guy who produced the album, and right. Rizza and Martin Shkreli and Padalate. So in the course of that, Silver Rings came to know who I was. And then, uh, you know, that lawsuit ended. And about, I don't know, a year maybe after that concluded, Silver Rings reached out to me because uh, an associate of his had a track that was infringed by French Montana in a song called Lockjaw. And so I took up that case and, um, you know, ended up kind of getting to know Silver Rings. And in 20, I think it was 2018, when Martin Shkreli got arrested for securities fraud, um, Silver Rings became concerned about what would happen to the album because it was seized by the government and wanted to assert the contract rights that he retained as the original producer and seller of the album um, in that forum, in the asset seizure, so that the album wouldn't be auctioned off without its contractual restrictions being passed on to the new buyer. Um, and those you know, contractual restrictions um, are pretty important for the album's concept, which just to back up if people aren't familiar with it, is uh, a one-copy album with two CDs. Um, there are no digital copies out there, no backup or nothing like that, so it's just one copy. And it's not supposed to be commercially distributed for 88 years following the initial sale. Right. Um, it can't be streamed, can't be performed live for a large audience for a profit or anything like that. And uh, so... We wanted to make sure, and the, and the concept, the reason that that works for the concept is the concept is to have a work of fine art as opposed to a commercial musical work that's distributed um, widely through streaming, through downloads or whatever, because the original, you know, the original concept was to make a statement about the devaluation of music, digitization, and um, also, you know, the amount of money that record labels take out of the process and the amount of money that artists don't end up getting. So they wanted to create this one copy album that, you know, only a real true fan would come up with the money to purchase. And, um, you know, it would be something that would be comparable to the Mona Lisa or some other, you know, thing that is just iconic that, you know, not a lot of people have access to necessarily. Right. I know when I believe they were talking to Forbes when the album was initially announced, um, they compared owning an album such as this to owning a Picasso, a one of one original. It, it gives you the rights to have the physical product, but doesn't necessarily give you the rights to dis distribute it or really do anything else with it. So that's a, the fine art analogy, I guess, that you just used was also used by them and i think is a good analogy in this case yeah and at the time you know what was happening um for the past whatever hundred years leading up to that was that people were recording masters and then reproducing as much as they possibly could you know first selling records then selling uh audio cassettes then selling cds and then selling downloads um no musical work was made as a a fine art piece that there was only going to be one of that was just not done at all. And it hadn't been done since maybe the 1700s when classical composers would do works on commission for, right. you know, wealthy patrons. So it really, it captured everyone's imagination because it was just so innovative, 
and so different, just 180 degrees different from what everyone was doing. And, uh, you know, we really wanted to make sure that that was preserved um, after the government took possession of it. I think it has. I mean, we're, we're here seven years after the original release and we're still talking about it, right? Yeah. So this album, I guess in some ways, was the precursor or the originator of NFT music releases. What do you see as the future for NFT music releases? I think that blockchain technology, um, which underlies NFTs, has a lot of transformative potential for the music industry. Um, already there are platforms like Audius and Royal that allow artists to kind of use blockchain technology to um, directly interface with their fans and consumers of their artwork more directly than was previously available. I think that blockchain technology, because it, um, you know, it scales pretty well is something that could really change the way that royalties are collected and distributed to artists. Um, Yeah. And I think that NFTs in particular, the ERC 721 type tokens really enable artists to, um, kind of interact with fans in a way that wasn't possible before in terms of like having, um, you know, say if they wanted to do a social token or a VIP token where you'd have access to events using your token that only, you know, a few people had, um, allowing for geofencing at concerts. So, you know, say if you have a token like that or some other type of token, you can get into a VIP area or find, you know, uh, augmented reality, icons or artworks in the venue or you know any number of things participate in some kind of vote or whatever right um there's a, there's a lot that could be done with this technology and it just makes the barriers to entry to things like that a lot lower and it enables people to do them without as much work and you don't have to hire like a you know like a developer to create some kind of an app for you this stuff is pretty easy as a layer one solution to um build on top of and the stuff that's built on top of it is easy for everyone to use, the dApps and the Layer 2 solutions. Interesting. It sounds like from what you're saying, NFTs have the potential of bringing larger artists in some ways back to a more DIY approach and bringing them more close to fans, enabling them to do things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do, sort of sky's the limit kind of thing to what the potential is. Yeah, yeah. A lot of cool fan interaction. And then I would say also, you know, again, like distribution, um, the ability to distribute music through blockchain solutions is pretty good. Again, it scales up. Um, if you're looking at a layer one solution like Solana, which is what audio Audius is based on, um, you know, the transaction volumes and times and, uh, transaction fees are really low. So it scales really well. Um, so you could have the type of scaling that you need for a big streaming platform and, uh, kind of like one off, like exclusive, merch drops or VIP access stuff is really well enabled by blockchain right. technology. You, you mentioned Audius a few times. Um, I'm not familiar with that. Can you tell me what that is? So Audius is a, is a layer two Solana solution um, for artists. You got to just go check it out. It's, it's kind of hard for me to explain. Um, but, you know, it uses blockchain technology to kind of better connect artists with consumers and, um, you know, route the, the money that people are paying for music to the um, the artists more directly. Gotcha. So it's basically a music centric blockchain service. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can you know you can go on there and find new artists. Um, 
so Justin Blau is like a real innovator. I don't know if you're familiar with Blau. Yes. Yeah, he's like a real innovator in music blockchain stuff, and he has the Royal platform. Um, I don't think he's done anything with Audius. I'm trying to remember like who's involved with Audius. But the Royal platform that Blau set up enables artists to, I think, sell pieces of their rights to collect royalty streams so they can kind of, um, you know, set up royalty streams that people can participate in, like fans. Which I know I remember listening to him talk about, like, you know, back in the beginning of 2021, and I guess Royal was what he was talking about then. So that would enable a fan to, hype to what is it, buy into a portion of the rights of the song and then receive royalties from that? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So, like, you know, publishing, mechanicals, whatever happens to be generated by the track, you would be entitled to get a piece of it. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. So you have a long history, as we've gone through a little bit, being a litigator, but you've recently told me that you're doing more transactional work these days. Um, what do you enjoy about both transactional and litigation, and what made you, I guess, scale your focus more towards transactional nowadays? Yeah, so transactional work was kind of like a natural outgrowth of my litigation practice, where I would end up meeting a client, you know, either a small company or a mid-sized company, usually, and do some sort of litigation work for them or help them resolve a dispute short of actual litigation. And they would come to value my opinions and they would tell me about other situations they were involved in and ask my advice on how to negotiate contracts to avoid problems like this in the future. So I ended up, uh, you know, just advising people on transactions all the time, helping them negotiate contracts. And it just kind of went from, you know, like looking at, non-disclosure agreements and vendor contracts to setting up companies and, um, you know, taking in capital under certain circumstances. Uh, I haven't got to the point where I've done like real hardcore capital raise work. I usually hire some kind of other counsel for that, but, um, yeah, I've become now involved in pretty much every aspect of, uh, my clients' businesses legal-wise and become sort of more like an outside general counsel to, I would say, like five or six of my clients, maybe more. And, um, you know, what I like about it as opposed to litigation is that it's a lot shorter in duration. Um, You know, a transaction from start to finish usually isn't more than a couple months. And whereas a litigation could be, you know, anywhere they're never less usually than a year and can be up to five or six or seven or even 10 years depending on what happens how many appeals there are you know if there's follow-on litigation or whatever after that right um and it's generally i would say a lot more positive and constructive than litigation transactional work nothing constructive usually is happening in litigation and uh people are very negative And, you know, it's kind of fun to take what I learned over the past 13 years or whatever of a litigation career and use it to help people figure out what their risks are and what kind of protections they need from those risks in their contracts and their dealings with third parties, customers, vendors, investors, uh, you know, regulators, what have you. And also, you know, a lot of the interesting work in blockchain is transactional work and advisory work. Like, figuring out how to finance these pretty promising new opportunities and ideas in a way that doesn't run afoul of security laws or won't 
bring some kind of a class action risk or, um, you know, violate banking laws or money transmitting laws or whatever. I really, I really enjoy gaming that stuff out and kind of helping people visualize how to execute new and exciting business ideas and economic ideas and technology ideas in regulated, you know, reality. Right. So speaking for students, do you think it is important for students, whether they are centered on going into one over the other or don't have an, or aren't sure what they want to do, do you think it is beneficial for them to get experience in both transactional and litigation so they have familiarity with both sides of the equation? Yeah, I think it's important. I think I feel like most people, or in my experience anyway, most people I knew who were going to law school sort of had litigation figured out already for some reason. One reason or another, it's just more accessible. Um, you know, there are television shows about trials. You can go to trials. Um, People are always reporting about lawsuits in the news, right? You're reading about lawsuits that involve the government or whatever. You don't really hear about, you know, you know there are not shows made about transactions, like negotiating a funding round. Um, and you can't really just walk into a conference room or listen in on a conference call and find out what people are talking about when they're negotiating some sort of transaction or economic arrangement. Right. Um, so I think it's I think it's really important to get a handle on the transactional stuff and to understand generally the world of corporate finance. You know what's the difference between a private equity fund and a hedge fund? Um, how do companies raise capital? What's a venture capital firm? What do they do? Why do companies use LP structures? Like all those things are just you know maybe kind of a mystery I think to a lot of people, and at least they were to me anyway when I was attending law school. Right. And in addition to um, getting exposure to transactional practice or learning about the world of finance, I think people should really, no matter what practice area you're going into, just be on top of technology as much as you possibly can, because no matter what you're doing in the law, technology is going to impact it. And in my opinion, the more on top of technology you are, the more successful you're going to be as a lawyer, just one way or another, whether you're at a firm doing work for other partners or whether you have your own firm or whether you're in government or whatever, um, right. having a good understanding of the cutting edge of technology is uh, a big difference maker. Yeah, I think even outside of law, honestly, if you stay up on technology, you you have a leg up on most people out there. I mean, it's super important in law, though, because in law, there are a lot of lawyers who are not really too good at technology for one reason or another. You know, they're not good with the, the software, the technology stack that they use. They don't really understand the technology maybe that their clients are using. And um, right. it just puts them at a big disadvantage, I feel like, to people who really kind of have a, you know, basic understanding of it and are able to actually, like, use the latest technology to some extent. Right, yeah, especially from an IP blockchain perspective, I think lawyers that can, even if it's not from, let's say, a traditional IP patent background, if they can understand the underlying technology that the agreement or whatever is based off of, I think that is that would definitely be beneficial. I mean, if you're going to be an, if you want to be an entertainment lawyer or a media lawyer, knowing about technology is incredibly important because, um, you know, the means of distribution of intellectual property are really kind of what drives a lot of the practice. Right. And it's all, I guess, sort of changing with, you know, streaming and NFTs. And like you said, staying up to date is crucial. Yeah, yeah. Things are changing overnight these days. I also wanted to mention for people who are interested in um, 
entertainment law in particular. Of course. I had no idea about this um, even until like a few years ago. I hate to say it, but there's a book called All You Need to Know About the Music Business by a lawyer named Donald Passman, yep. which is in its 10th edition right now. Um, it's, a you great, know, it's a great Certainly, book. everyone should be familiar with that if you're going to be an entertainment lawyer. It just saves you like so much time um, and puts you in a much better position than someone who hasn't read it, I would say. Yes, that is the book for entertainment law. And it's, yeah. it's constantly updated, and it's a great book, yes. So for everyone listening, if you're not required to read that book for one of our courses, definitely pick it up. It's a great read. So yep. with all your great, interesting experience that you've had throughout the years, what's one thing you wish you knew when you were starting your career? I mean, I think that uh, I just want to touch back on you know the, the transactional practice in the finance world. I think that's really incredibly important to understand that stuff um, because it, it does drive quite a lot of uh, legal work, you know, um, right. the ways in which companies raise capital, the different types of financial institutions that are out there to understand that's pretty important. Even if you're going to be a litigator and you don't think that you're going to need to ever negotiate, you know, some kind of contract or series of contracts, it's just important to know about it. Another thing I guess I would say is, and I knew this, when I graduated and started my career, but the relationships that you make in law school and your first job um, professionally are extremely important. And I would say that the better you are about staying in touch with people and about, you know, making and maintaining friendships, just the more successful you'll be one way or another as a professional in the future. It's really important, I think, to just, you know, have people remember who you are, remember who people are, and um, be able to connect with them and talk about your shared interests and what you're up to. Be, you know, be personal, you learn be a lot. professional. Yeah, yeah. You, you, know, you learn a lot about what, what other people are into, and that kind of helps you have a better, more rounded understanding of the profession. And, you know, obviously, a lot of times, new clients come in through old professional connections and stuff like that. So, um, really, really important to, you know, talk to everyone they're going to school with, hang out with them, you know, maybe spend like one hour less studying and take that hour and use it to just like talk to people that you haven't met before at the law school or at your job or whatever, you know, whatever you're doing. Um, I think that's, that's can't be overstated. So I think you pretty much just answered this, but if you have anything else to add on it, what advice would you give to someone interested in going into a, a legal career in entertainment, IP, or crypto, such as yours? Keep an eye on the news. And with regard to entertainment, you know, it's a little harder to find. Um, but whatever you can find out about the terms of entertainment deals, like media deals, deals for talent, um, whatever you can find out about new types of combinations of companies, new methods of media distribution, music distribution, film, television, whatever – you know, you should know as much about that as you possibly can. That's really what you're going to be dealing with as an entertainment lawyer. And, um, you know, the technology also, again, incredibly important to understand what's going on with um, new types of digital media platforms generally and new types of payment systems and, and whatever. And, um, you know, also I would say stay on top of culture. Like what's, you know, what platforms are people using? What are people wearing? What are people listening to? Um, that again is like a lot of what you're going to be dealing with, you know, right. What are fashion companies doing? What types of like 
are they using like prints these days? Are they using images? Does stuff not have a lot of branding on it? Are the designs not so busy? Like, believe it or not, you know, I have a lot of, I've had a lot of fashion law disputes and um, trends and fashion and stuff like that and graphic design. It's just relevant to what we're doing. So I would say just kind of really stay up on all that stuff. Don't, don't be too focused on, um, you know, like, studying for stuff like when you're just burned out and you can't really read it anymore like you know try to try to focus on a few other things that are outside of your your current studies right yeah practical practical knowledge interpersonal relationships and staying up on technology i think those are three really great things for students and young professionals to look out for and keep in their in their mind yeah, and also, I mean, have like some kind of a, I would say, I want to say professional looking, but have some kind of like a put together online presence um, and, you know, think about like your profiles and stuff that people can see that are publicly available and how you're communicating to people what your experience and what your um, interests are. That's that's a pretty important one because, you know, people look you up like future employers, um, people that you're doing business with potential clients, whatever, they look you up. And as you know, Google has a pretty long memory and um, it's never too early, I think, to start establishing like a good um, thought out online presence. Right. That's actually really interesting. And I think you're our first guest to bring up your online, someone's online presence. Um, What do you recommend for students, I guess, to, you know, start building that professional presence? Is it just a LinkedIn? Is it more, I guess, professional-minded other social media platforms? Like, what do you recommend? I mean, I would say that if you're going to be a lawyer and you're going to be a serious lawyer, your personal social media accounts that are publicly viewable shouldn't show you as being an unprofessional you know, person who's frivolous and, like, doing things that don't speak well to professional, right? I mean, right. if you're taking professional responsibility, I think you kind of – have come to understand that um, you're a lawyer all the time and things that you say, even when you're not practicing law, um, are looked at by people. And, you know, even if you're not out there preaching some ethics rule, you still want to keep in mind that everyone's looking at you. You're now kind of a public figure, you know, not really in the sense of like first amendment public figure, but you're someone who people are going to be looking at online. And um, you want to have, you know, some kind of a professional appearing personal social media, if people can see it. As far as the professional stuff, um, you know, like LinkedIn or I don't even know if there's a comparable platform right now. You know, I would say write your copy carefully. Think about what you're saying. Um, think about whether you want to put a lot of copy on there or just a little copy and make it really impactful. You know, try to use links to your past experience or whatever that are actually the company profile as opposed to just like writing it in there that's kind of unprofessional and yeah try to just i would say target maybe one or two platforms and um you know see if people have set up profiles and other platforms for you you know like the ones that do it automatically um can't think of any off the top of my head but you know what i'm talking about right like where they pull your address from some public record and they have your name on there Try to try to keep control of those and not let too many of those crop up because you want to mm-hmm. kind of curate what's out there about you. Like you don't want someone else defining what your practice areas are and stuff like that. Sure. Um, 
and try to you know use the profile on a regular basis so that you're um, staying in touch with people through it and so people see you active on there because having a really old profile that's out of date that you haven't used for a long time you might as well just not have it because it makes it look like you've set something up and abandoned it which is not um the right signal to send to people who are going to potentially want to be hiring you for something so is that even people working in the real world as lawyers in-house counsel whatever is that a mistake you see people making not engaging more in a professional online presence kind of just being stagnant in their profiles and not letting people know what they're doing yeah, you see it from time to time. Um, a lot of lawyers really are pretty good about keeping an up-to-date profile. Um, you know, like Twitter, for example. If you set up a Twitter account, I think I'm guilty of this actually with my own firm, and have like two posts and then just never post anything else, that doesn't really look good for people to see that. If the posts are from like six years ago, people will be like, well, what's this guy been doing for the past six years? Right. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, I think that's an important one. You know, really take efforts to make your online presence what you want it to be well thought out, not messy. And, um, you know, in relevant to what you're into also, you know, if there's some platform for a specific industry or something, you may want to consider joining that. Do you know of any entertainment law specific platforms for our listeners? No, not aware of them, but LinkedIn's a good place to start. There are groups on there of entertainment lawyers that you can join, and then you're kind of uh, more directed to relevant content. Yeah, I have seen those, and I'm sure there's groups for all areas of law on there, I'm sure, right? Yeah, I mean, for, for blockchain stuff, um, I would get on some Discord servers because uh, a lot of the blockchain communities um, are on Discord chats, and you can just kind of go on there and see what's going on and you know, make comments, meet people, get onto uh, DM chats or whatever offline. Awesome. Well, anything else you think our listeners should know about any of these areas of law or anything else going forward? I think we got it pretty well covered. Um, yeah. Okay. It's been great talking to you. I think our listeners and myself have learned a lot. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Nice speaking with you, Jared. Thanks again to our guest, Peter Skullid, for joining us on the Brooklyn Sports and Entertainment Law Podcast to talk with us about entertainment law, IP, and blockchain technology. It's been a very informative conversation, and we enjoyed having him as a guest. I'm your host, Jared Wiener. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Brooklyn Sports and Entertainment Law Podcast.